0: Welcome to Explore the Space. We're digging into healthcare issues that matter most. Our guests and conversations mine these issues for perspective and answers. There is a gulf between healthcare and our communities. This is the place to talk about it.
1: Now, here's your host, Dr. Mark Shapiro. Welcome back to Explore the Space. This is Dr. Mark Shapiro. A couple of months ago, an event transpired that I think we're going to look back on as being a real touchstone uh, when we think about how we manage problems, how we look at the history of medicine in the United States, uh, what happened was the Centers for Disease Control, the CDC, released a guideline. And this was a guideline uh, that was designed around the prescribing of opioids for chronic pain. And this was a real sea change uh, for the CDC, I think, to intervene this was an issue that is fraught with difficulty, it's fraught with challenges, and it's been fraught with controversy for many years. Uh, this guideline is an important moment because it's the CDC sort of raising its hand saying, hey, we have to try something a little different here. This problem is getting completely out of control, and we need to start taking steps to rein it in. Um, it was not met with universal acclaim. I think, obviously, in concept, people were excited about it. But at the same time, there's been lots of discussion around it on the physician side, the nursing side, the patient side. Uh, it's reached all levels of social media, uh, the mainstream media. Uh, it's been a topic of conversation for a couple of months. And given that it's such a controversial issue, given that it is such a divisive issue, given that it's an issue that's oftentimes fraught with confusion and misinterpretation, I wanted to have a guest come and help us sort of flesh this out. Dr. Deborah Howery is the director of the National Center for Injury Prevention and Control at the CDC. Uh, she has been involved in research to prevent injuries, to prevent violence and reduce their consequences since she joined the CDC uh, in October of 2014. She's an emergency department physician by training, uh, and she came on to really lend uh, some thoughts around the genesis of this, what the road forward looks like, but also to address some of the controversy, some of the concerns, some of the difficulties that we're going to face in going forward. It was a really, really interesting conversation. It was uh gratifying to be able to talk to someone involved in not just the construction, but also implementation of something like this, um, and it speaks to, I think, the CDC's commitment to want to... Promulgate the word around this, get the word out, get people interested, get people on the same page uh, so we can really move forward on this really, really difficult and challenging subject. Um, she can be found on Twitter at Deb Howery, D-E-B-H-O-U-R-Y-C-D-C. Um, and you can go to the CDC website at cdc.gov to find all the information on the new opiate guidelines. You can find the guidelines itself. There are resources for patients, there are resources for providers. Uh, it's pretty comprehensive, and as it continues to roll out, there will be more and more things that are going to be added. This was a great episode. Uh, I'm glad that we were able to do this. I think you're going to really enjoy it, and I think you're going to also get a lot out of it in terms of figuring out where things stand on this really complex and challenging issue. So with that, here's Dr. Deborah Howery. Dr. Howery, thank you so much for joining me.
0: My pleasure. I appreciate the opportunity to talk about this important topic.
1: It's a very important topic. I think you, you, you just really put your finger right on it. You know, having been in practice for, for over a decade now, gone, obviously gone through training, gone through medical school, Opiate management, the management of chronic pain, how we take care of our patients with respect to this in a re- in a in a manner that's safe, responsible, but also meets their needs, is a is a challenge. I think when the guideline that the CDC came out with kind of hit the press and hit the medical literature, I, I for one was struck, um, and I wanted to ask you. The reason I was struck is obviously the scope of the problem is large. And it's big enough for the CDC to decide, we need to take action. We need to involve ourselves and be very visible doing it. Give me a snapshot of just how we got to the place where you and you and the CDC really felt like we need to step in and, and intervene.
0: Well, it's interesting. Actually, back in 2006, CDC, the Injury Center here, published a paper on the increasing deaths due to drug overdoses and found that it was correlated with prescription of opioids. So, you know, almost 10 years ago, the CDC started sounding the alarm that this was an issue, and over the years has really been working with different state health departments on evidence-based programs for opioids. When we were looking at our portfolio, though, and seeing really how these overdoses keep increasing and how it's really diffusing across the U.S. population and all demographics, we were trying to think about how best, you know, given our position between both public health and the healthcare system we could help intervene and we wanted to develop some tools for healthcare um, providers and physicians to really utilize in their practice. Um, I've been practicing um, like you for, you know, over 10 years and I've seen it change where when I was first in medical school and residency training, we were just told keep treating the pain you know, you can really just keep increasing dosages. You There's no maximum, but I think what we've realized is that a lot of these opioids can be really addictive and deadly for patients, and the higher the dosages, the more risk for overdoses and addiction. And in my own practice over the years, instead of just writing that quick prescription for an opioid for somebody that came in with a back strain or something simple like that, I started questioning whether that was the best medication for them um, or if they were coming in with addiction, really having more of a conversation around referrals for them versus continuing to write that prescription.
1: I remember those same lectures around management of pain. Um, I remember the emotion in the room from my classmates, medical school, residency, feeling like this is this is kind of what we're here for. We can really be of service. I remember feeling like that was really sort of being leveraged. And it was all very well-intentioned that, hey, here is the toolbox to get rid of someone being in pain, right? To, re- to relieve suffering. Um I remember, though, the part where that was not emphasized, and specifically looking back, it was not emphasized that, hey, there is real potential for harm. There is real addictive potential. Here's the tool set to have a conversation around that. Um, Have you guys found in talking with other physicians, nurses, patients, addicts, is this something that is sort of recognized as having been a gap in the discussion? I think it's one of
0: those things where it's not just a gap in the discussion, but there have been a gap in evidence, and it's really been the past few years that we've seen more evidence of the risks. Mm -hmm. So the evidence for the benefit of long-term opioids has not really been proven, but the risks have been proven over the uh, more recent years. I think that's where the discussion is changing to where now we know more about the risks and the effectiveness of opioids, that there's other medications or non-medications that can be more effective for long-term pain I think when you look at it kind of from the medical model, if somebody comes in with acute pain, opioids can be effective because you're treating their pain. Somebody with long term pain, there's a physiologic reason that they're still having ongoing pain, and you need to address that reason.
1: When you put the guidelines out there, obviously you must have anticipated it was going to precipitate much discussion in the, in the regular media, social media. When you thought about what is the immediate state we want to get to, what, we, what do we want to have happen quickly when we release this, and what is the future state that we want to get to? Where do we want to be six months, 12 months, a couple of years from now when we release this, when you guys were kind of gearing up for the release? What were those discussions like?
0: So I think we wanted to really have physicians and patients start to have that heart-to-heart conversation on the risks and benefits of opioids, as they would with any long-term medication. And our hope was that these guidelines would really, again, sound the alarm that uh, for chronic pain, non-opioids are the preferred treatment, and that this is really a patient-provider discussion around risks and benefits. And as you would with any chronic medication, you you assess the risks and benefits, but You also just don't continue somebody on a medication without seeing how they're doing, you know, whether it's assessing have they had improvement in function, improvement in pain, do they have new risks, like comorbid conditions, and checking the prescription drug monitoring program to make sure that there's no diversion or abuse. And I don't think we had been as proscriptive about that. So our hope was out of the gate that physicians would start really including these in their practice. Our goal would be, you know, six months to a year from now to have more tools for physicians to use in their practice, whether it be we hope to have a mobile app that, you know, docs can have on their phones or their computers to use or work with different electronic health record providers to integrate this into systems. That way, it's more of a smart set to where you can, you know, order um, urine drug screens and have it linked to PDMPs to where it's more seamless. And really working with different patient groups so that patients are aware of the different options for managing pain.
1: It's interesting uh, what you present in that future state gets to a lot of the conversations that myself, colleagues, uh, and friends, people that are not in medicine were having around this is a great guideline. The concept, of course, is outstanding and is and is sorely needed. But we need tools. We need how to have this conversation, how to have a this difficult conversation, how to streamline the workflow. Um, and that was where we all kind of looked at each other and said, okay, this is great. Um, that being said, I, I've got a full panel of patients to see today. Um, I have to execute this stuff in a timely fashion so everyone gets the attention that they need. It's those tools that you were mentioning. When, when those start to come out, will, will there be another sort of education phase, another publicity phase to make sure people know that that's coming?
0: Yeah, we'll, we'll continue to push out different tools, and depending on what tools they are or um, how many there are, you know, different levels of publicity. What I would say is we wanted to have something on day one, though. So if you go to our website, cdc.gov slash drug overdose, on it you'll see things like a checklist. Mm-hmm. We worked with um, a tool and Ariadna Labs on it to really develop a checklist so providers you know only looked at one thing that would help them guide their practice. We also had some um, one page handouts for both post for both patients as well as physicians on different things like pregnancy and opioids, or what are non opioid options. So we have some of those tools already out there we are working with many different provider organizations and are open, you know, to different collaborations and so we're hoping that these different organizations will also push it out through their channels and we'll be working on a public communication campaign later this summer early in the fall to really talk with consumers about opioids as well
1: there was a sense also when when i read the when i read the guidelines and it says the management of chronic pain There's one thing that I think you and I both can speak to not being in the guidelines. You're an emergency department physician. I'm a hospitalist. Is how do we discuss the management in the acute setting? How do we reconcile needs, expectations, safety when we're dealing with someone in the acute phase in the emergency department and also when they're in the hospital? Because it is a challenge of the highest order. Um, with respect to safety, with respect to time management, with respect to so many different things, is that going to be part of the discussion as well going forward?
0: So one of our recommendations, recommendation six, did talk a little bit about acute pain. The evidence has not been as robust yet around you know, specific days or conditions for acute pain, so we just wanted to get some general guidance And in that, we talk about how, as you pointed out, long-term use can begin the treatment of acute pain. So to really focus on giving the shortest dose possible, the shortest dose and duration possible, Mm -hmm. and not to do those, like, extras, you know, to where you might give somebody a few extra days just in case, to really give the shortest duration possible um, so that they don't go on to become addicted or need longer doses,
1: that's interesting because that, that sort of thing that you mentioned that those a few extra days to help people get through. One of the problems that we run into, of course, is patients having multiple prescriptions and whether or not we're able to know that those exist, um, and that we're not giving somebody too many pills. Obviously, those tools, I know they're coming, but do you feel like there is enough there for doctors and, you know, the registry in the emergency department or the pharmacy in the hospital to be able to help reconcile how much of these medications does a patient have at home, and is it safe and reasonable for us to give them more?
0: Yeah, I think the prescription drug monitoring programs have really come a long way in the past few years, um, and some states such as Oklahoma have near real-time input. Mm-hmm. I believe it's five minutes after a prescription is given. So I think you know, checking those PDMPs, particularly uh, some states have actually found ways to nicely integrate it with different healthcare systems. I believe Illinois is one of the ones that through some of their hospitals have either a link like on electronic health record or been able to do data polls. That way it's not several clicks you know, or several minutes to get that information. So I, I do think the prescription drug monitoring programs can provide that information on our patients' doctor shopping or have extra prescriptions.
1: It's so interesting to hear your scope of this issue. You're talking about it at a level that as the – as the hospitalist in a, in a in a community i'm thinking about really at the individual granular patient level you're at the state level you're at the national level but it makes me wonder when you guys get feedback on this is there is that does that cause more connection between your message and what's happening on the ground or does it allow for there to be some disconnect if we're not are we seeing this in the same way i
0: think we are seeing this in the same way and when we published Our uh, draft guideline in the Federal Register, we actually received over 4,000 comments. And I actually read every comment myself just because I don't get to work in the ER as often as I used to. And this was the way that I could get the patient and family stories. My staff also reviewed all these comments. And, you know, it helped us refine the guideline a bit further. And I think it's helpful to see the numbers and see the evidence-based interventions that you can do at the macro level. But then again, remembering the faces of the families and the patients while you're doing that.
1: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The other thing that came up for me as I was looking through the guidelines and then talking with people and asking people how, what their sense of all of this is, is it does seem like there's a couple of sort of difficult to resolve conflicts um, within this. We have a couple of directives, right within healthcare. One of them obviously first do no harm. Of course we have this guideline, which is essential. But we also have mandates around pain as the fifth vital sign, which I remember when that movement sort of started in the nineties. I wasn't in medical school yet, but I remember that really being a point of emphasis in my training. Um, that we, you know, that this is, this is something that's really important. And then link that being linked to patient satisfaction, being linked to age caps, being linked to patients perceptions of management of their pain it really feels like those two are, they're they're almost in, they are in opposition, and they're difficult to reconcile.
0: You know, it's interesting, because I I had a lot of those same feelings until I started reading some of the research papers around it a bit more, and I believe it was Annals of Emergency Medicine that had published a a small um, study just really looking at pain management or giving opioids and patient satisfaction and there wasn't much of a correlation with it. What they did find a correlation with was communication by a provider. Mm-hmm. And so I think realizing that patient satisfaction, you know, we we often hear, again, on the front lines when I, I was there from patients that would say, you know, I'm going to give you a bad um, report if you don't give me a, a prescription. But I think Many of those patients probably aren't filling out the patient satisfaction surveys, or if they are, it's in the larger scope and an average of everybody. Um, yeah. There is that push pull, but a lot of the federal agencies have really been working in a concerted effort to look at this from a holistic perspective, to where we want to ask about pain and make sure we're addressing pain, but to do it in the safest way, and to make sure that we are not um, incentivizing providers to, you know, treat with opioids because of this concern about. Uh, reimbursement, and Mm -hmm. so there's been some clarification from both, I believe, the Joint Commission and CMS and several publications recently this spring as to their intentions and how a lot of this is more perception than reality, but again, perception can be what drives everything, so Mm -hmm. I I do think this is an area we need to work a bit more on.
1: I, I, I agree with you. I think those reports and those sort of modulations of what's happening on that side of the patient satisfaction, I think really should be as forward facing as possible because that's where a lot of us feel there is a disconnect. And it's also, listen, you, you know as well as I do, you, in the emergency department, when a patient says things like that to you, it also just hurts. I mean, we're professionals. We don't want people to be angry. We don't want people to be saying these things. It's it's not good for morale. It's not good for retention. Um, it's it's a difficult thing to go through. And when there is that, as you say, that there's that push pull, it's it's a challenge. It's a real challenge. And in, in in fields of medicine where it's happening over and over every day, it can it can be a drain. And that's where
0: I'm hoping that this guideline will really help physicians be more comfortable in addressing chronic pain, you know, to really have that conversation that it, I'm not just giving you this prescription because, you know, it's not the best thing for you. There's better ways to manage your pain. And, and knowing how to do it in an evidence-based fashion really gives people the tools to have more confidence in doing it versus, you know, having that uncertainty when they're dealing with a patient or not knowing that they're doing the right thing I'm hoping that this will give physicians the confidence in managing pain more effectively. Mm-hmm.
1: I think we're going to need to fold our nursing colleagues into this as well because they're the ones that are initially going to get that request from a patient, hey, I feel like I need more pain medication, to be able to front load so that they can also have that conversation with the patient as well and not just path of least resistance, let me page the doctor, let me ask the physician, um, that it can be a pivot of... There are multiple steps that you're going to have to go through in order to get a rational dose of a pain medicine, and I don't think we're there yet.
0: We're definitely not there yet, but the White House published recently a pledge from both uh, medical schools in March, and then I believe last week with nursing schools, 60 medical schools and about 150 or 180 nursing schools have pledged to incorporate the CDC guideline and, and safe pain management into their curricula. So I think getting the next generation and the providers as they're, you know, beginning their medical career and their nursing career early on to understand these principles will be really helpful so that it's different than the training and education that you and I got years ago.
1: Yeah, I was just about to say that that'll be really, really important so that the whole mindset will be different going forward. There's also the key, I think, too, is just in in sort of having message consistency and having the volume of the message be high. Obviously, this was a high-profile thing. And it feels like the profile is growing. Obviously, with the unexpected death of Prince, which it sounds like has at least at this point been linked to possibility prescription pain medication. And then there was the recent LA Times article that I think you were, you were quoted in about OxyContin, a long acting narcotic. These are things that are, um, they're upsetting. You know, I've, I've obviously, we were all fans of Prince and I read the LA times article a couple times. Um, I remember, you know, we use Oxycontin, we prescribe it. I remember learning about it in medical school. Um, these are things that change the the path of the conversation and obviously they're designed to elicit a certain response, but that response is very real. How are we going to sort of mitigate these feelings? I mean, I think there are feelings you read that article in the LA times that did pharma kind of overreach with some of these medicines? Are, thing, are there things that are out of control, and how are they going to get reined back in?
0: Well, I think that's where the guideline really helps physicians use it. You know, when tasked with, you know, do I give an opioid, do I give a high-dose opioid, do I give a long-acting opioid, thinking back to the evidence behind the guideline, and to, if you're going to use an opioid to use a short-acting And again, if you're going to use an opioid, it shouldn't be alone. It should be with a non-opioid, both, you know, pharmacologic and non-pharmacologic and really trying to think about integrated pain management for the patient and not just that pill. It's not a magic pill.
1: I I think you're right in that part. I think that it's going to be important for all of us, though, to maintain the volume of that discussion because otherwise I, I do worry that it will get drowned out a little bit. With people being angry, people just being frustrated, and instead of looking for a solution, they're going to read the LA Times article and just get mad, um, or they're going to, you know, hear about the death of a musician who was beloved and just get mad, and that that might kind of cloud the discussion a little bit.
0: Yeah, I think there's different stories that I'd love to see out there more, including, you know, cancer patients who've been on long-term opioids and now it's difficult to manage their pain because they've developed such a dependence from other chronic pain conditions they would had earlier. I think those are the stories we're not seeing as much. And I also, when we're developing the guidelines, heard from many pain medicine specialists that when they started decreasing the dosages for patients on long-term opioids, that patients actually did better. They had better functional quality of life. They, of course, tapered these slowly and in conjunction with their patients, but many of their patients, you know, felt less groggy, had less constipation, were able to get up and about more so I think having more positive stories along those lines are helpful
1: too. There's no question that the power of storytelling is what drives this. I've had guests in the past, Kevin Poe, you know, who runs Kevin MD, yeah. Steve Beeson, and they all we all talk about, listen, we can talk about data all day long. When we can tell a story, when we can tell this is what I saw when this is what happened when I did this or a patient told me this that's what really is going to resonate. And I think that you just nailed it. That's going to be the road forward to help people refocus that, hey, there are tools that we can use to move this.
0: Yeah, that's my hope, that we can continue to have this dialogue. And even as we see improvements, you know, hopefully by using the guideline and having better evidence-based care and protocols that we can start to see improvements in the, the trends and that we can show that we are having less patients addicted, Less overdoses and say this is working. Yeah. let's keep
1: it up. Yeah, I think the one other piece that I, I'm sure you would you felt as well is that on the MD side, needing more tools is on the treatment side. Is saying, look, we're going to work to reduce the number of people that get exposed to opioids, but we've got a pretty big delta behind us of people who have been exposed to opioids and may have become addicted to prescription and have become addicted to prescription opiates. We've got to close that delta a little bit. Um, and where do you think the energy for that is kind of going to come from as we go forward?
0: I think the secretary has been very supportive, really, of all three pillars. I think you have to look at preventing people from getting addicted in the first place through safer prescribing of opioids, increasing medication-assisted treatment for those who are addicted, removing the stigma around it, ensuring that there are more providers that prescribe it, and then ensuring that there's naloxone. That way, if somebody does overdose, it can be
1: reversed. The interesting thing about the naloxone is, is in, in your vision, where do you see the role of that? Who should be carrying naloxone? Should it be like an EpiPen? Naloxone, of course, the antidote for someone who's had an overdose of, of opioids. Um, should that be like EpiPens where people have it? Or do you have to carry one if you are prescribed a long-acting narcotic? Where, what is your gestalt around the use of the naloxone?
0: You know, so in our guideline, we actually talk about if you're at risk for an overdose, if you're on a a high dose of an opioid, or if you have things like breathing problems, or kidney problems, or prior overdoses, or a history of addiction. We do recommend co-prescribing naloxone.
1: It's going to be really interesting to see how those pair together, and physician comfort level grows, and the comfort around these, frankly, often difficult discussions grow. If you were to predict, if you were to kind of have a sense of how things have gone now and as we go forward, when, when you come back on the show in a year's time, what is the framework of our conversation going to look like then?
0: My hope is that we will have seen really a, a reversal of where we are today and that we're seeing less death and that you and I are going to be talking about how do we sustain the momentum now. You know, mm-hmm. we have tools that can impact this epidemic, physicians now know what their role in it is and understand the risks and benefits of the opioids, and patients are coming to their providers really asking about what their options are for pain management, and now we have to say what's the next step to continue to drive these numbers down.
1: Yeah, I think that would be an outstanding future state. I think that one of the many calls to action that I'm sure you've heard is that the volume has to stay up. The, you know, it's, it, the guideline is great. These sorts of conversations are great. Um, but the volume has to stay up. The conversation can't fizzle and other things kind of take back over as our attention spans move. Because like you say, this is an epidemic. They don't just go away, um, with one maneuver. The, it's going to take time, attention and rigor. Um, and I think that is, going to be the call for, for the CDC, for physicians, for nurses, for those who may feel like they're going to need an opiate is to just, this conversation cannot fizzle out. Agree. When you go forward, looking at getting to that next year spot, are you going to continue with tools to keep that volume up, to keep the conversation going? What do you, what do you sort of have in place to do that?
0: Absolutely. What I'd say is part of it is continuing to work with different medical organizations. That way they are carrying the message as well and that other physicians who are on the front lines are talking about their experiences. We will continue to develop tools, whether it's mobile apps, things like how do you check a urine drug test, and again, we'll have a communication campaign for the public rolling out within the next year, and I think that will really help consumers as well have this on their radar if it isn't
1: already. It's a, it's an admirable thing that the CDC has elected to take on. It's it's important. I think it's going to define um, a lot of the healthcare provisions that we do over the course of a generation. And so um, I, all of us are going to be watching and participating very actively to help keep this moving forward. I thank you very much for coming on. And as this evolves, this is a, a great spot to continue this discussion. So you're welcome back anytime.
0: Thank you. Really appreciate the opportunity and would love to come back a year from now and talk about the
1: progress. There you go. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you for listening to Explore the Space. Visit us on our website, explorethespaceshow.com. And please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at ETS Show. And you can email Dr. Shapiro by writing to Mark at explorethespaceshow.com.